in chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Would you pray with me one last time? Father, as we consider these words of Christ, may we grasp at the weight of eternity then and there as we stand today in the here and now. Would you help us to rightly balance the weight of here and now with then and there? Would you help us in our decisions? Would you help us in our thinking? Would you help us in our relationships and in our work? Most importantly, right now, Lord, as we hear your word, as we've heard it and as we are processing it, would you speak to us life that is in you, Father, that is in Jesus, and that now is in all who believe. We ask for your spirit that we might follow you in obedience to what this passage has to tell us today. In Jesus' name, amen title this morning is Here and Now, Then and There. It's pretty simple. It's not up there. My bad. <laughs> the title is Here and Now, There and Then. And you see that, I hope, from the passage of what Jesus has said here. He's talking about two different hours. There's an hour that is coming, verse 25. There's an hour that is coming and is now here. And then, in verse 28, an hour is coming. He, does, he says it is not here yet. But these two hours, these two seasons of time are really in a lot of ways one with each other and dependent upon each other. And what we see that Jesus tells us today is that we clearly need to hear the voice of the just judge who has already passed verdict on all now for a time that is yet to be. Jesus has already said that the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world is already condemned. Judgment has been passed. But there's a difference here. In this passage, Jesus is explaining the significance of his presence here on earth. That he who is the very word of God now brings the voice of God and the words of God to people who need nothing more then they need the word of God spoken to them. So there's judgment in here. There's the voice of God. There is the role of the son in judgment. There is even this terrifying sounding verse at the very end. 
that an hour is coming when all who hear the voice of the Lord, let's, let's look at it, sorry. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Does this sound like a horror movie to you? Does it sound like an appropriate October message, perhaps, leading into Halloween? Jesus is talking about a resurrection that is to come, that is a already but not yet. That what happens in the season of time where we are right now, where the voice of God is speaking and the word of God is available to us, this season and our response to the word will determine what will happen on that day. Last week, we looked at uh, Jesus' explanation of his equality with the Father. He talked about himself in terms of submission to the Father, of imitation of the Father, of having the same power as the Father does to give life and to pronounce judgment. And then lastly, that he is worthy of the same honor as the Father, which was what the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, were not giving to him at that time. We, used, we, we saw that Jesus explains that the groundwork of all of this is the love that is shared between the Father and the Son, and that we're called to marvel and honor Christ as he truly is. Not to misplace him, not to put him wherever we would like, wherever he might fit into our lives, third place, fourth place, or beyond, but to take him out of the list entirely and give him the rightful place as Lord of all. And that that leads us to real, genuine testimony as opposed to what the man who was healed at the pool did, rather, when he heard that it was Jesus that had, that had healed him, he went back to the Jews and said, hey, the guy's name is Jesus. Now, that's a testimony. Not really to the right people at the right time, it would seem. But when we hear the voice of God, when we understand who Christ is, and I say understand lightly because there is a depth to the identity of Christ that we can't ever even grasp onto, when we see Christ for who he is, when we worship him rightly, put him in the right place here and now, there and then, it's going to work out dramatically differently than it would otherwise. So this week, Christ appeals to his own position and authority more pointedly, more specifically. Again, rather than Jesus saying, hey, let me explain away how I'm not actually equal with the Father, how you misunderstood me. He doesn't do that, contrary to what many people today will say, that Jesus never claimed to be God. In one sense, that, that argument is so compelling because we don't have a whole lot of places where Jesus says, yes, I am the Son of God, equal with the Father, etc., etc., etc. He doesn't give us the Nicene Creed or anything like that, but rather what he does is far more compelling than to simply make a statement. He explains it. That's what he's doing in the passage. We're looking at it right now, and he's going to go more specifically into this matter of judgment today. So look with me at the first hour in verses 24 through 27. We see that in the first hour, there are dead who will hear the voice of God and do what? The voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will what? Somebody tell me. Will live. What is he talking about here? There's obviously a distinction in these two hours. First, we have those who are dead now, in this hour, who hear and live. But then he's more specific in the second hour that is to come because he doesn't just say dead. He says those who are in the tombs. There's clearly a distinction here. Otherwise, he would have said dead twice in the same way or he would have said in the tombs twice. 
Jesus is not at this time going around everywhere and preaching in graveyards where people are coming up out of the tombs every single time he preaches. Though we are going to see a foreshadowing of the hour that is to come when he goes and raises Lazarus from the dead with his voice. But what Jesus is talking about here is those who are spiritually dead. We get this from Paul. Paul tells us in Ephesians that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Spiritual death is far worse than physical death. It is what Christ has come to address in the first place. And as his word is preached, as the gospel is preached, it's preached to us who, apart from that good news, apart from the work of God, are spiritually dead. And that's significant for us to pick up on. Because as we think about a future resurrection, and we think about a future where, at some point, tombs will open up and People will come out of the tombs for judgment, will be raised, both the good and the evil, he says. We need to think about what that looks like right now in the spiritual realm, because it is, in some ways, even more significant than what we could see with our eyes in that hour to come. So the spiritually dead will hear and live. This is what happened, believer, when you first believed, when you first heard the good news of Jesus. You went from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. That is not just a, a matter of changing you know, your favorite football team. This is a matter of all of life looking radically different. We can understand the weight of this again by comparing it to the hour that is to come. Your life in Christ, if you believe, if you've heard and believed, should in many ways look as though someone could say it's as if they came out of a tomb and started living again. A dramatic change in hearing the voice of God. In this dramatic change, we see the sovereignty of God very clearly because it is his voice that gives life. It is not the response of the one hearing that gives life, though we must respond. We saw a lot of this last week as we looked at the role of Christ in salvation and as he works with the Father we see very clearly that salvation is of the Lord, as the Bible's been telling us all along. When we talk about sovereignty, we're talking about God's rule over all things. That if he wants to do something, there is nothing in the universe that can stop him. There is nothing that if he determines to act, can actually undo that action. Read Isaiah, for instance. But now we also come to this matter of the hour that is here and the hour that is to come, and we have to add to the sovereignty of God and salvation the matter of our responsibility. And the problem with these two ideas of God being totally in control and us being totally responsible for our actions is that those two things don't seem to go together, do they? How can God be completely in control, but if I don't do what he wants me to, I'm responsible for it? This has boggled the minds of theologians for 2,000 years and beyond. Human responsibility, your sin. If you sin, you, the Bible says, the soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. You have to deal with that. But if you want to escape that, God has to do such a work in your life that in his speaking, he raises you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And he needs to do that in the here and now. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. 
we don't get anything close in the entirety of the Old or New Testament that tells us that salvation is something that we can put off and wait for. It's something we need to deal with today. And I know I might be talking, I'm, I know I'm talking mostly to Christians, but it's something that we need to consider as well. Paul tells us to examine ourselves to see whether we're really in the faith. And when we look at these words of Christ, we cannot simply jump immediately from the matter of new birth and life in him and the voice of God doing this in the here and now and say, okay, well then let's just jump right to the end because I know the application is going to be something to do with a testimony that we need to testify to others about this life. We first need to deal in our own hearts as well. The spiritually dead hear and live when God speaks to them when Jesus' words come in and give life. We see the unique role of Christ as speaker and judge in this. Again, when we talk about the equality of the Father and the Son and how he was accused of making himself equal with God, he doesn't turn away from that. He lets that statement stand. He actually explains it even further. Let me tell you how equal I am with the Father because I am the one who can speak and give life. To say that you can speak and give life is only a divine action. You can't say anything other than that you are equal with God in that statement. Secondly, to be able to say that you're going to, to, to do the judgment of all souls, all who are spiritually dead, all who are spiritually alive, to take on the role of judge is also a divine statement as well. And he gives us the reasons for that. Verse 26, he says, it's because the Father of life has granted life in the Son, granted that the Son have life in himself. Now, it's important. I know we're, we're kind of, you might feel like we're splitting theological hairs here, but it's worthwhile for us. Because what has happened when Jesus says this in verse 26 is not to say that God had decided at this point now to give life in Jesus, in himself, as though he has now bestowed something new upon him that he didn't have prior. When we talk about having life in himself, we're not talking about how believers have new life because our new life is not of ourselves. Does that make sense? Our new life is not of ourselves. It's life that's been given to us. And so what Jesus is saying is life hasn't been given to him by the Father in the same way that life is given to us. He's saying that he has life in himself. And so this is a matter of the essence of Christ, of, of the, the divinity of him, the godness of Jesus his equality with God. And of course, in his incarnation, in his becoming a true man, we see that this relationship kind of takes more shape in the sense that there is the father and the son, the father who directs the son, who calls the son to perform different things, to, to bring salvation, to bring judgment. And the son submits to the father. And so that's what we're seeing here when he says that the father grants it to the son to have life in himself. Secondly, we see the reason for Jesus's unique role as speaker and judge is because the son is also the son of man. Where does that come from? This title, son of man, has a lot of significance. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, which we'll read later, we see Daniel having a vision of one coming who he calls a son of man coming before the ancient of days and being given dominion and all the nations would obey him, all the nations would serve him and he would be the judge of all. When Jesus says in this passage that I am the son of man, he's not just saying that just like how we are all sons of certain men, he is saying I am one who holds 
a divine office. I've been appointed for this divine role. So we have yet another conflict of understanding because as we talk about God being completely in control and myself being completely responsible, we're also seeing that in Christ's nature, he is in his essence, in his godness, able to have life in himself, but also appointed for it, appointed to do judgment and to have life in himself. Both things true simultaneously. That's what's going on in the here and now. Christ has come. He is preaching. He is giving life. He is preaching to those who are spiritually dead. And that has continued even post his death and resurrection and ascension back to heaven. It's being continued in this very moment. It's being continued when you open up the word of God. Because what we believe about the word of God is that it is actually just as powerful. It is just as authoritative. It is just as significant when we read it on a page as if Jesus were to stand up here and speak the very words to us. I don't believe that the words of Christ lose any power or lose any efficacy or any function of itself just because it's been transferred to paper. So his preaching is still going on in the here and now. But there is a there and then. There is an end that is coming. Verse 28 through 30 show us this, where as in the here and now, the spiritually dead hear, now the, the, in the there and then, the physically dead will hear and will be raised. Because he's talking about people coming out of tombs. He's talking very specifically and very clearly in a physical kind of way. In verse 29, these will be separated by their good and by their evil, those who have done good and those who have done evil. And then in verse 30, we have this reassurance that Jesus can do nothing on his own. What are you talking about, Jesus? You just said, you just explained all of your equality with God, but you can do nothing on your own. Remember, he is submitted to his Father. He is choosing to obey God. He does not function apart from the Father. In his equality, there is more closeness between the Father and the Son than there is distinction. Because he cannot... Indeed, he will not do anything on his own, but only what he hears. He says in verse 30, as I hear, I judge. Who is he hearing? He's hearing the Father. He's hearing the truth of the Father as he preaches to those who are spiritually dead, as he brings to life in one day to come, brings to life those out of the tombs. He is hearing the voice of the Father in agreement with all that he is going to do because he is equal with him. Is your head spinning yet? Mine's been for the past week, so welcome to the club. All of this theology, all this head knowledge, is glorious. It's wonderful. It is worthy of your time, church, to sit and think deeply on these things. But we cannot simply end with these theological truths today in our worship service as we gather together without thinking about why these things matter. We're talking about two times, a here and now and a there and then. What do I do about the there and then in the here and now? When I get to the there and then, what will have happened in the here and now that actually affected the there and then? Have you ever heard this poem by C.T. Studd? He was a British missionary. If you happen to be in the sermon that I last shared this poem, then you have heard it. You're going to see a larger portion of it today. C.T. Studd, this missionary, says in the beginning of his poem, Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way. 
bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life, which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will it fleet, its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We don't have the amount of time that we think we do. We make all sorts of plans, don't we? How many of us have our weeks planned ahead? How many of us have months planned ahead? How many of us live hour to hour thinking, I need to get through this so that I can get to the next thing? And because there is so much filling up our planners, we think there must be the time that fits according to it, right? Only one life which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. He's not saying that what happens in the here and now doesn't matter. He's saying that what happens in the here and now matters far more than we can imagine. And that only those things that are done for Christ will really last. I hope this puts a weight on your heart as it does for me. If only for selfish reasons so that you can bear up without what I've been bearing with. But for spiritual reasons, for good reasons, I ask you today, is the weight of the here and now versus the then and there in proper balance in your life? If you have the scales in your mind and one side representing the here and now and the other representing the then and there, have you rightly balanced each side so that what happens in the here and now is proportionate to what you would hope would happen in the then and there? That you would be called to the resurrection of life for good and not to the resurrection of judgment for evil. And we're talking about balance here, right? We cannot be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good, but we can also not be so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good. The Christian is called to balance. The Christian is called to a struggle of understanding the essence of Christ and the appointment of Christ, a struggle of understanding the sovereignty, the rule of God in all things, and the responsibility, the 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 need for us to admit our wrong for all humanity and then to also live in light of eternity today. Good obedience to this passage is not to bunker your, yourself in and just close your eyes, your ears, see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil, and just wait for it all to be over so that you can make sure that you resurrect the right way. But it is not also to just say, hey, look, I don't know if we're really going to make it out of this alive, so let's just get everything we can out of this life. And I imagine that for most of us, it is far easier for us to be in danger of letting the here and now dominate our focus as opposed to the then and there. Would you agree with that? Or can you examine your heart and say, you know what, I just think about heaven too much. I just think about the end times way too much. Now, some people in their Bible study and their theology and in their efforts to understand God spend all their time in the book of Revelation trying to unpack and un unwind the the mysteries of the imagery in that book. It's a worthwhile task for a while, but there's a lot of Bible besides the book of Revelation, isn't there? Yet at the same time, our true struggle most likely is dealing with what our senses are most bombarded with day by day. I don't imagine that any of you wake up to, do you remember that scene in Back to the Future? I'm sorry. Do you remember in the beginning when Marty McFly goes to Doc Brown's house and you wonder why is this teenager showing up at this like weird scientist's home in the beginning of this movie? And what was he doing? He had to feed Einstein. But what else was he doing? The dog. 
Yeah, he was playing guitar. He went in, turned all these dials, plugged his guitar in, in front of this huge speaker, and played one chord, and it sent him flying back the other way. I wonder if we are truly bombarded by the word of God in the way that that movie depicts in the beginning. Has it really brought spiritual life to us? Does it continue to bring spiritual life to us day by day? Or is there some other loud noise coming in? The danger of letting here and now dominate our focus and and tip the scales far over this way such that we have no stock in the future and that hour that is to come is probably our greater challenge. Here's C.T. Stead again. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We deal with spiritual death here and now. One day, we're going to face the matter of physical death. That day may be upon us individually far sooner than we could imagine. Jesus turns our thinking around for us. You remember that this conversation started because of a healing that happened on the Sabbath, right? This man who had been crippled for 38 years, sitting by a pool, hoping for some miraculous thing to happen, whereupon he could throw himself into the water when the water stirred at just the right moment and be healed and have his life completely changed. Jesus comes in and says, you don't need that, you need me. Get up, take up your bed and go home. Well, this man is thoroughly soaked up in the reality that he's living in the here and now, right? And who wouldn't be? Do you think that this man suddenly stood on his feet for the first time in 38 years and said, you know, this ain't nothing compared to the spiritual uh, resurrection that I'm about to experience in the then and there? No, he he was totally captivated by his new life in the here and now, by what Jesus had done now. He had turned his life completely around, totally upside down. He had undone 38 years of, really, in this man's own mind, I imagine, uselessness. When it comes to the true message that Jesus had for him, when he finds him in the temple, and he says, see, you've been made well. What does he tell him to do? Make sure you exercise those legs and take really good care of yourself. Have you taken vitamins today? Do you, are you getting enough rest? Um, running three miles this morning was probably a good idea doesn't do that. He doesn't say any of those things at all. He says, you've been made well, but sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. He redirects him to something that has far more weight in there and then than we think it does here and now. Because when sin happens in our lives, so often as we are the culprits, we are the guilty party, we can very easily explain it away. We still have to deal with the consequences, and we might notice that pretty quickly. But the true weight of our sin is not truly going to be felt for anyone until we see the sinless one, until we're brought into the presence of God. Do we respond to hearing the voice of Christ in this present hour with anticipation for the hour that is to come? Do we respond in such a way that says, I need to sin no more? Is that a priority in your life? Or, like is so easy in the Christian life, not to point fingers here because we're all guilty, as it's so easy to just simply say, you know what, Christ has dealt with my sin, and if I can just kind of close my eyes, ears, 
and, and mouth to what I've been doing. Just hold out until the end. Just pretend like it hasn't happened. Christ wants us to deal with our sin. He wants us to deal with the wrong that we are guilty of in this world. He wants us to do so with an eye towards the there and then as we live in the here and now. Here a terribly sad story from Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy from prison. He's tired. He's ready to be done. He's anticipating his death. He's asked for some simple things. Can you bring me my Bible? Can you bring me my cloak? I'm cold. I really wish you were here, Timothy. And in verse 10, he's explaining how so many, he, he's just left with Luke. And, and, you know, poor Luke at this point. I wonder, you know, if he ever read 2 Timothy and went, what do you mean left with Luke? I, I stuck around. But he was the only one that hadn't deserted him. Paul expresses in 2 Timothy 4 how the gospel and the cause of the gospel has led to many of his friends, many of his fellow workers in the gospel, going off in different directions because of the gospel, for good reasons, but also those who have gone for bad reasons. Listen to the tragedy of Demas. Paul says, Demas, in love with this present world, or we might say for today's sake, the here and now, Demas has deserted me, gone to Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia, and Titus has gone to Dalmatia. You see no negative thing mentioned of Christians uh, or of Titus. But we do see very clearly the problem that Demas had. He loved this present world. Can you imagine? I mean, what did that look like? I don't imagine that Demas is walking faithfully in ministry with Paul and then just stops and goes, you know what? I miss the world. See you later, Paul. What is it that causes Demas to say in his heart truly at one point to say, I'm done, this is it? And, and how close are we to that kind of a mindset? What kind of things set us off to say, man, I don't really know if this is worth it, if, if following Christ and preaching him is really going to make an impact in the world. I don't even know if impacting the world really matters to me. I love this present world. I love what I can get out of it, and I've been missing out for too long. It's time for me to abandon this whole silly crusade that Paul's on. Look at him, he's in prison. I don't want any part of that. That's not loving the here and now as I want to do. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last the three dangers that we might have in an unbalanced perspective of the here and now and the then and there has to do with the three most important relationships that you have. First, before the Lord. The thing that he calls you to, Christian, the thing that he calls me to, that I have to put that word in my mind more than any other word on Sunday morning is faithfulness. Faithfulness to the Lord and the work that he has for us. Look at verse 29 of our passage in John 5. He says that those who are raised from the tomb will come out, those who have done good, those who have been faithful to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil, those who have been faithless to the resurrection of judgment. Unless Demas' life turned back around and he got his priorities straight and balanced out the here and now and the then and there, he was headed for the resurrection of judgment. And unless we rightly balance here and now and there and then, we are also headed for a resurrection of judgment. 
because we have done evil rather than good. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Our faithfulness before the Lord. Secondly, our hope in our own hearts. I imagine part of Demas' problem with his love for this world was his hopelessness for Christ. And in our hearts, though we trust that things that are getting worse will one day be made better, we still have to get through the worst, don't we? And it's very easy for us in the church to attach ourselves to things that seem close to the matter of the gospel, like politics. Like if we could just fix the United States of America, things will be so much better. If we could get the right person in the right office with the right policy, things will be fixed and we'll finally have paradise. Brothers and sisters, I don't think that any of us wake up any morning and say, that is absolutely my mantra. That is what I live for. But it is so easy when we have pressure with China, when we have a declining church attendance, a declining representation of Christianity in our own country, when we have a virus that is still going two years strong, it's still a matter for us to deal with, it is so easy for us to look to the ways of men and lose our hope in Christ, to give in to fear and to give in to doubt, because no one's going to do what we think should be done. Thirdly, as we think about these three dangers of an unbalanced perspective, first, our faithfulness to the Lord, secondly, our hope in our own hearts, thirdly, our testimony to others. Probably one of the most dangerous reasons that we don't share our testimony with other people is because many days we live as though we don't have one. I have days, I have way too many more days than I'd like to admit, where my testimony, if I had the opportunity, as there are so many opportunities, I should say if I take the opportunity to share Christ with someone, it would come across on a certain day as one that has no hope, as one that represents no faithfulness before the Lord, as one that has been so weighed down by the pressures of this world and the love for the here and now, taking even the good things that God has given us, our families, our jobs, our homes, those things that are good that he meant for our good and for the betterment of the work that he has for us, turning them into idols. And somebody comes up to me and says, can you tell me about the hope that lies within you? Can you tell me about Jesus? No, but I can tell you about my car. I can tell you about the show that I watched last night. It was great. It's such a cool story. I can tell you about my family. I can tell you about my home, my job. I can tell you about my accomplishments. I can tell you about all these things very enthusiastically. And it's probably God's grace in our lives that people don't typically walk up to us on the street and say, can you tell me about the hope that lies within you? Because we would often be embarrassed and unprepared. I hope that's not true of you, but it's often one thing that I fear in a disbalance between the here and now and the then and there. How is Christ going to fix this in our hearts? This impossible problem. This problem that we face from the moment we believe to the moment that resurrection, to that hour, that then and there that actually comes. I tell you, church, he doesn't have to fix it because he has already provided the remedy. At the cross, Christ has secured our life in him, both in the present in the here and now, and in the then and there. He's secured life in us because life is in him. And at the cross, he made that great exchange of taking the judgment that we deserve, the judgment that he has pronounced, he has taken upon himself. Can you imagine being in a court situation where the judge has handed down to you a death sentence, 
and then stepped down from the podium and taken that paper back and said, I'll take it for him. There's no judge in the world that would ever do that. What an outrageous thing. What, what an, a place to accuse someone of unrighteousness. You don't deserve to die. That man deserves to die. Yet on the cross, the wrath of God the Father was poured out perfectly and completely on Christ, as though he was the one who became faithless rather than me, as though he's the one who lost hope and started loving the world like Demas loved the world, as though Jesus was the one who was asked about the nature and truth of God and had nothing good to say. He died on the cross with all of those infractions, those crimes upon himself, and by his wounds we are healed. Before giving life, he's taken our judgment. His resurrection then vindicates him as the true son of man. I said we'd read from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Listen to what Daniel saw. He didn't even know what he was seeing. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that being God, was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. that All people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the son of man. This is the one who has been granted to have life in himself so that he can give it to you. This is the one who went to the cross knowing all of our imbalances with here and now and then and there and has decided to take that upon himself and to make us right before God. And at the cross, his mercy towards us shows us the depth of the wonder of the character of this God-man, the one who has come to judge us. And his rightful statement in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just. That statement is true whether Jesus goes to the cross or not, but he went to the cross so that you could see clearly that when he calls out judgment on the righteous and on the unrighteous, he is absolutely just in calling the judgment that he does. At the cross, we see these three dangers of imbalance for the here and now turn into three joys. That faithfulness to the Lord is now underpinned by Christ's faithfulness on my behalf. You'll remember 1 John 2.28, I hope, from not too long ago. Little children, John says, abide in him, and his faithfulness, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming rising from the tomb, seeing Christ, and letting your first reaction be to step backwards. is evidence there is no confidence in him, but rather there's only fear towards him because those apart from him know they have done evil and face judgment. But the children of God who abide in him, abide in his faithfulness, when Christ appears, they have confidence. They don't shrink back. They don't step away. They step forward. They're excited. They, their joy is fulfilled in seeing Christ face to face. So faithfulness is transformed. Our hope in our hearts is now secure in the one in whom is our life. We don't have this eternal life, you know, in a jar. We have to make sure we don't trip and break it or, or do something wrong. Life is in Christ. Your life is hidden in Christ, Paul says in Colossians. So we have a great hope that we can move forward confidently with what he's called us to do, whatever that might be for this afternoon or for tomorrow, for the week ahead, for however long the here and now lasts, you have every reason to hope in Christ that your life is secure. 
And then lastly, your testimony. Your testimony to the world is reinforced by his testimony. Because all you're doing is telling people what he's done in your life. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away in the here and now, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Our inner self is being renewed all the way up to the point of the then and there. Verse 17 says, For this light momentary affliction... He's talking about you there. I don't know if you noticed that. He's calling your afflictions two things. So you can be mad at Paul for this if you want. Your light and momentary affliction. I know that is a hard pill to swallow sometimes. And I would love, there are moments where I would love to say, let me just talk to Paul for a second. And then Paul would say, yeah, let me talk to you, son. Listen here. You can read in his epistles all that he went through. He's the one saying that your affliction is light and momentary. What is he comparing it to? What Christ has done on the cross in your behalf. Verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, the here and now, but look to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There's only one life to live which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that only one life, that life that Christ lived on our behalf, connects the here and now with the then and there for us. He is the bridge to us thinking ahead rightly. In one place, he tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's no less true in this context. He's just saying that as we live today in the here and now, We don't forget about the then and there. We don't forget about what's to come. We look to it with hope. It's to get rid of your worry for tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. Stop doing that, church. Stop worrying about how Monday's going to work out. Stop worrying about next Sunday, Nick. Completion of this, our goal in walking in this truth, is because of the security that we have in the voice of Christ. Now we can confidently walk in the good works that his voice produces here and now talked about this before obviously that the work that god calls his people to are not things that they come up with on their own they're things that he's prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them so when we come to the then and there and he says and i I read this you know with with horror at some points this past week they'll come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment what if i'm wrong about this whole salvation by grace thing believe in christ he said it at the beginning of this verse 24 Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment. has passed from death to life. We believe salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But there are works. And they're going to matter in the then and there. But Christ does not want us to worry about that day, but to look to that day with anticipation. To not look at it with annoyance and say, okay, you know what? I get it. I'm fed up with this world. It's messed up. And when Jesus comes, he's going to make everything right. He doesn't want us to be fed up. He wants us to be hopeful. He doesn't want us to be worried. He wants us to anticipate and to walk confidently in these works, stumbling to the left and to the right, not doing perfectly, missing things here or there, missing far more than we think we're hitting, but trusting the voice that granted us life, trusting the unity that Christ has with the Father, that that when we're placed before Jesus and he brings us to the Father, the Father isn't going to say, Oh, Jesus, you really messed up on this one. Nick wasn't supposed to be here. He's on the other side. I'm free to mess up because Jesus never does. 
I'm not saying we should aim for messing up. We should aim for faithfulness. We should aim for hope in our hearts. We should aim for true testimony by his spirit working in us. Because just like Christ, as he says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. Our goal is to imitate that. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Whose will do you seek today in the here and now? Because when we get to the there and then, there's only one will that's really going to matter. The will of God, the voice of God, the determination of his judgment far more than our own. So believing Christ, imitating Christ. That is the good I think he's talking about in verse 29. He's not talking about us saying, okay, let me add something to the voice of God. No, life is given through hearing and believing. Only one life. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its own way, then help me, Lord, with joy to stay. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Will you weigh the balances of the here and now and the there and then in your own hearts today? You can't balance it on your own. It's going to look like this if things are going well. It's never going to be perfectly placid and peaceful. There's going to be times where we focus too much on the here and now, many times where we focus too much on the there and then. Will you seek the balance by seeking Christ? Are there things that are bearing too much weight, too much thrown on this side or the other when it comes to now and then? And those things that you've done, have they been done for Christ or have they been done for self? Can you truly say, I do not do the things of my own will, but the will of him who sent me? In Christ, you can, because the will's been completed. His work is done. Our work is continuing, but it's his work. He's working through us. Would you pray with me, please? Father, this morning, we thank you that this passage that at first glance may lead to hopelessness, may lead to faithlessness, may even lead to just a complete lack of testimony, in fact, empowers us to trust you day by day as the here and now slowly turns to the then and there. The hour that is to come and that is now here is the hour that your voice is speaking, Lord. Perhaps your voice is speaking and being received for the first time rightly by some. Perhaps some are still saying, no, I don't really need that. This has just been a waste of my time. I'm looking to the next thing in the here and now. Lord, would you captivate our hearts? Would you fix our minds, our hope, and all of our joy and anticipation on that glorious day when you will return. Knowing that you will make all things right and receive the glory that is due your name and fulfill our created purpose to bring you glory. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let that be true of all of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.